Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. Sometimes something will just hit you out of the blue. It'll just sort of float out of the heavens and be like, hello, I am for you. That is how I feel about the TV shows of Damon Lindelof. It happened to me when I watched the pilot for Lost way back in the summer of 2004. And then it happened to me again when I watched the pilot for his HBO series, The Leftovers, back in 2014. Now, The Leftovers has just ended its run with a tremendous series finale. But I wanted to talk to Damon about more than just the end of The Leftovers. I wanted to talk to him about his career, about his writing philosophies. But we also are going to talk a lot about that final season of The Leftovers. But don't worry, I'll give you a spoiler warning so you don't get spoiled if you haven't seen it. But really, why haven't you seen it? It's great. It's amazing. So without further ado, here's some Damon Lindelof. I kind of wanted to start with, when you were like growing up, do you remember a moment or a show or a movie you watched where you were like, okay, people actually make this stuff. Like this is actually a thing that people do for a living. It was somewhere in the space between Star Wars and Empire. I I saw Star Wars in 77 for the original release, but I was four years old when that movie came out. And I have the kind of memories that four-year-olds have, which are, are distinctive moments in the movie stuck out. But I don't think it's the first movie I saw. I think maybe Bambi was. But when you sit in a movie theater as a four-year-old on your dad's lap and the screen is so massive and the sound is so loud, it is the closest thing that you have to a religious experience. And so um, I saw Star Wars over and over and over again. And my dad had like a 16-millimeter movie projector. And at the time, you could get like scenes from Star Wars So he got the scene where uh, Han and Luke are basically in the Millennium Falcon and they're they're blowing up TIE fighters. And then he had the scene where they all go into the trash compactor. But just like those sequences, watch them over and over again. And somewhere in that space between 77 and 80 when Empire came out, we became members of the Star Wars fan club, which was called Bantha Tracks. And they would send the Kenner action figures and uh, newsletters about the behind the scenes. And, you know, one of my very early memories is there's just a photograph in one of those Bantha tracks of George Lucas kind of pointing out on the Vista and there's Mark Hamill standing next to him. Mm -hmm. And I was like, who's that guy? And my dad was like, he's the, that's George Lucas. He's the director of Star Wars. And I was like, what is that? And he said, he made it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was the first moment where I was you know, started to be just as interested in George Lucas as I was in anything that was happening in the Star Wars universe. Right, right. Did you have dreams, I guess, of being a director, or do you still have dreams of being a director? <laughs> I think that I probably would have tried it by now. I mean, yeah. it's it's one of those things that I'm starting to feel like, should I try it? Am I not doing it because I'm I'm afraid of failure, and if that's the case, then I absolutely should do it? Or am I not doing it because I don't think I'd be any good at it, which mm-hmm. is probably a legitimate reason to not do it. I think that it diminishes the art of directing to just tell anybody, oh, so we like your writing, so you should direct. Mm-hmm. Or we like your writing, so you should be an actor. Mm-hmm. Like, no one has ever said to me, have you ever thought of acting? You know, so I view these as very different specific art forms, and I'm really comfortable in the writing space and the producing space. But this is not to diminish the process of filmmaking, but I don't like being on the set. Mm. Um, Like, I like visiting the set and watching directors work and watching actors work and watching the entire crew work. But there's never been a part of me that's basically like, I want to call action and cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, are, are you thinking about acting? Are you watching a one-man show? Are you? I probably will not act. Um, 
some people are like, why don't you, you know, why don't you do a cameo or just like a walkthrough where there was a pervasive rumor this season of The Leftovers that I was the guy in the koala uh, costume <laughs> that uh, that Kevin comes running up to in Melbourne, which I will neither confirm nor deny. But but that would have constituted more acting than I believe that I'm capable of, <laughs> uh, just standing there in a koala costume. Well, just having talked to you uh, over the years, you're you're so open about what everybody else brings to the table, which is, I think, part of one of the things I love about TV. Um, there's certainly a sense of, you know, collaboration in film, obviously, but on TV, there's this sense that everybody kind of has their ownership of, of a piece of it, but not everybody is that way. What, what do you, what, why do you feel like it's necessary, not necessary, but like, why do you it enjoy, why do you enjoy giving credit to other people? Some people don't, you know? It is necessary and I enjoy it because it's true. And mm -hmm. I think that as maudlin as this may sound, if I have an opportunity to be talking to you right now or to be out there in the media sphere in any way, I think I have an obligation to be as authentic and open as possible. And I think that I get, because I'm a consumer of this stuff too, right? You know that I'd be listening to this podcast if I weren't on it. And I, I'm really interested in the way that television is made, even though I'm making it. And I feel like for people who are outside the industry who are listening to this stuff, they deserve as open and honest a conversation about how it's made. There is a magic, you know, to, to making uh, great storytelling, whether it's film or television or, or writing book, that can't be demystified. So there's this sort of aspect of I don't want to know how Copperfield or Penn & Teller or David Blaine, know, you know, do their tricks. I know their tricks, but I'm not sure they are. But when it comes to the way that this stuff is made and an episode of The Leftovers is basically going to end up being 55 minutes of, of material that you watch, but I kind of feel like if credit is being disproportionately awarded to me, oh, this was Lindelof and Lindelof did this, when I know that another writer had that idea or an actor made a move that I couldn't have even conceived of or Mimi Leader or any of our other amazing directors elevated the material, I'm duty-bound to basically correct it for the record. Mm. Um, and it's not so much like, oh, I'm a great guy because I'm sharing credit. It's just I, I don't think I'd be able to sleep at night. It's almost like, my worst nightmare is to be given credit for someone else's great idea. Mm. It would almost be feel better for me if I were blamed for someone else's bad idea. Um, like that just fills me with terror and anxiety, the idea that people don't actually know how this is made. And we got offered the opportunity for a, for a reporter to kind of embed from New York Magazine, this guy Boris. And I think he did a really good job mm -hmm. uh, through the finale. I, I just said to him, look, I just want you to talk to everybody. Right. You need to, you know, you need to look through through multiple lenses in terms of understanding how this is made. And and I understand that the finished result may demystify the process somewhat. People don't want to think there were bad ideas before the good ideas came, mm -hmm. but that's just the way that it works. And particularly, I have lots of bad ideas. And thank God that the writers, starting with the writers in the writers' room, Parada, Speziali, uh, Patrick Somerville, Nick Hughes, Carly Ray, Leela Bayok, you know, Tom Ricarder, Haley Harris. I've probably forgotten someone, but, you know, it's their job to basically look me in the eye and say, that is a bad idea. And then here's a better one. And mm -hmm. that conversation is what makes great television. And I feel it's, it's, it's critically important for people to understand that, you know, that I am fallible and I'm just as capable of terrible ideas as I am of great ones. You've mentioned before in, in various interviews uh, and to me uh, that you sort of think of the writer's room process as a jury room where everybody has to sort of be won over to an idea. And I'm wondering if there was a time on either Leftovers or Lost or any other show that you've worked on where you had you thought this idea didn't quite work or you weren't on board with it and then you were won over by the process of 
talking about it and going into it. Yeah, that happens all the time. I think something that, that I've already alluded to somewhat and Boris talks about in that article, but we can unpack it even further, is, the, is, is what happens to Lori mm. uh, this season. So are we in spoiler territory technically now? Like, uh, skip past this answer if you don't want to know this spoiler. Whatever. Yeah. But at the end of the sixth episode, Lori goes scuba diving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the last image that we see in the episode is that her kind of flippers go up and she stays under the water. And then the episode ends. And all of the information leading up to that moment that you would be unpacking seems to suggest that maybe she just killed herself or there's a high probability that she just killed herself because Nora is talking about suicide. Lori's pushing against the idea of it as a selfish act. And then Nora sort of incepts her with the idea of like, well, not if you went scuba diving and just turned one of the knobs the wrong way. Everyone who you know and care about would think it was an accident. And I would say that I was pretty resolved that Lori was dead, Mm -hmm. um, that she killed herself. And I felt like the entire episode, it would be like a cop-out. It would kind of be like the idea in the old serials of you see like a car going over the cliff with the hero inside. Mm -hmm. And then the next episode, it backs up like 10 seconds in time and you see the hero basically roll out of the car right before it goes off the cliff. And you're like, but you didn't show me that. Yeah. But after we we wrote this, you know, uh, Carly Ray and Patrick Somerville wrote the script, beautiful uh, uh, draft, and uh, and then we shot it, and then we started getting the dailies in of Amy's performance, and something was wrong in the room. Mm-hmm. Like there was just like the traditional energy. The the process is always hard, but there was this other thing where like whatever story well of souls that we tap had felt like it had just run dry mm-hmm. and. Like we were in this very critical uh, period of breaking the the penultimate and and final episodes, even though we talked a lot about those stories, everything felt like it just wasn't working. And it started to occur to me, is it possible that Lori is still alive? Mm-hmm. Like she was a real person. Like it was Schrodinger's cat. And the fact of the matter is, is when I got to that place of Lori's dead, several members of the room pushed back very aggressively. And we didn't get that jury room sort of unanimous. I was I, I was basically like, we're never going to have unanimous sort of agreement here. And the feeling in the writer's room is kind of the way that I want the audience to be feeling about, about it, which is they don't understand it. They don't think it's fair. They're angry at Lori. Those are all the things that people feel when someone commits suicide. Right. Like when someone commits suicide, is there ever a scenario where everyone who cares and loves about them is like, I got to be honest with you, that makes complete and utter sense and I'm kind of cool with it. Mm. Like, so all the feelings that we were having in the room, I was like, that's good if the audience feels it. I began to remember the arguments that the people in the room who were pushing against it, including Patrick and Carly, who wrote the script, they were good soldiers, but they were like, you know, maybe they knew like, because we didn't go under the water and see her turn the knob, that there was still a possibility in that Schrodinger's box of Lori, Hmm. that she was both alive and dead simultaneously. And I sort of went from room to room now, instead of in the writer's room, starting with Parada, then to Speziali, then to Carly, then to Patrick, then to Haley. And I, and I just asked the question, what if Lori is still alive? And the palpable relief that all the writers sort of were experiencing <laughs> made me realize that I was probably wrong. Right. And then that allowed us to use Lori in a very key way, I think, in the, in the series finale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to I take you back to, uh, again, to sort of your, your roots. And uh, television when you were growing up was not what television is now. Not that it was bad. Like there was a lot of good TV in that period. Sure. But it certainly was not like the 1940s. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah. So it was all downhill after the honeymoon. <laughs> what were some, 
what were some TV shows that you you were watching at that time that you sort of that sort of stuck with you? I know you've talked about Twin Peaks a lot, but sure. I, I'm even wondering if there are some before that. You know, I think that the shows that I basically remember a lot from my childhood are kind of like Dukes of Hazard, mm-hmm. Love Boat, Gilligan's Island, and Brady Bunch, with which were both probably in syndication at the time that I was watching them. But I, you know, I was kind of in into that stuff. A lot of uh, cartoons. But one show that I very rarely talk about but made just a huge impression on me was The Incredible Hulk. Mm. And I, my, my sense of it is that it didn't last long, maybe just like two or three seasons, yeah. maybe just one. I don't, you know, I'd be surprised to kind of revisit it. But there was this piano theme <laughs> in The Incredible. Da, 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 da. That was sort of like, oh, it's really fucking sad to be Banner. <laughs> You know, like what a horrible existence this guy has. You know, the Hulk is not the superhero you want to be. Mm-hmm. Like, just think about the idea of the premise of that show is it's obviously the it's a fugitive format, right? So he's running from McGee and it's he goes from town to town and sort of helps people. But he never wants to turn into the Hulk. Like he's basically resisting it actively every time. And like every once in a while, there'd be an episode where he sort of like fell in love, started to fall in love with someone. And then he'd fucking turn into the Hulk and like smash their house up. And then he turned back into that, into Banner and that woman would look at him horrified. Mm. And I'm like, wow, this is like, it just had a really profound emotional uh, effect on me. And no wonder it got canceled. (laughs) Um, Bill Bixby's performance was really amazing, as was Ferrigno's, I'm sure. But Mm. I I think that that show really made an impression. Mm -hmm. Twin Peaks, though, was a big deal to you, big deal too. Yeah, now we're getting into, like, my adolescence. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But uh, I I guess I'm going to ask, you know, you are— what I like about you is that you watch a lot of TV at the same time as you're making TV. Uh, You see a lot of movies as you make movies. Are you watching the new Twin Peaks? Is is it working for you? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's— I I saw you and Libby there um, at the the premiere. Mm -hmm. And what I will say is that I was shaken um, after watching the first two hours of the premiere— And I couldn't even tell you shaken in a good way or shaken in a bad way. I think first and foremost, I wish that I hadn't experienced it in a theater full of people, Mm. you know, because other people's reactions to things influence your reaction both, both positively and negatively. And the idea of being reunited with something that I've been away from for 25 years, although I've revisited the show over that time, but there hasn't been any new Twin Peaks to basically say... I'm now going to be reunited with this person is sort of like the equivalent of kind of going like, unlike Maury Povich, and it's like, you haven't seen your long lost father in 25 years. (laughs) And then he walks out on the stage and there's all these other people sitting around you and something that should play out incredibly on on an intimate scale plays out in a very public way. Mm -hmm. And then you're forced as soon as it ends. Basically, you're surrounded by all these other people who have their own relationships with Twin Peaks. And now you're forced into conversations with them to give like the hot take. Mm -hmm. I went back and I rewatched the first two episodes and then the second two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, st- I haven't seen episode five yet as of right now uh, because it was on against the Leftovers finale and I decided to watch the Leftovers finale. So, <laughs> no, we had an event on Sunday night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I haven't gotten to see the fifth episode, but I'm all the way in now. Mm-hmm. Like, I do love it. I can't, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and sort of critically un- unpack it, but in, I do think— that we should always start from a place, and this isn't me lecturing anyone else about how they they should watch television, but when we have this conversation, always start from a place of not is it good or is it bad. Mm-hmm. 
do you like it or mm-hmm. don't you? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I and it feels like, well, that's not really a fair question. Yeah, it's totally fair. Mm-hmm. And you actually know the answer to it. So I'm asking the, you know, I'm answering that question regardless of whether or not that's the question you're asking, which is, do I like it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. Not mm-hmm. only that, but like, I came home last night and I really wanted to watch episode five, but I hadn't really gotten to talk to my wife at all yesterday. I'm still doing a lot of press around the Leftovers finale. And so I needed to just talk to her about the emotional experience I'm having with the fact that the show ended. And that felt like a much more valuable way to spend two hours. And I've been getting all these incredible uh, emails and texts from people, some of whom are close friends now and some of whom I haven't spoken to or been in contact with for a couple of years and just kind of reading some of them to my wife and talking about everything that was going on. And then it was 1 a.m. So, Mm. but when, you know, but I'm just like, when can I go and watch Twin Peaks episode (laughs) five? And I think that level of anticipation, you know, wanting to see the next one, that's when television is, you know, is doing what it's supposed to do. And if it, if you want to see the next one because they've packed that cigarette full of chemicals that addict you, so be it. But then there's this other, I want to see the next one, which is I'm really experiencing, interestingly enough, a new kind of art, even though it's Lynch. I feel he, he hasn't made something in, I don't know, what was it? 11 years. Yeah. 11 years. And technically speaking, it should feel rusty or he should be kind of like shaking it off. And instead this guy said, I'm going to direct all 18 episodes of Mm -hmm. this thing. And just on a pure stamina point, but I also feel like as an artist, he's still Lynch, but he's saying something else, uh, something that feels both distinctly Twin Peaks and also at times like, what is this that is just fascinating for me? Mm. So I'm I'm drinking the Kool-Aid for sure. <laughs> what's, the, what's the most atypical thing you watch and really enjoy? Like if somebody said to me, Damon Lindelof is a big Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fan, I'd be like, I'm not sure about that. But like well, what's something you watch and enjoy that maybe people would be surprised by? That's a great question. I'm, I'm trying to think like is there anything that people would define as sort of a guilty pleasure? And for me to even mention it sort of lessens its like its cultural impact. But I will say like, It has been a while since I've watched something that is not on the list of things that everyone is telling me that I must watch. So it's sort of like uh, my wife and I just finished Master of None Mm. season two, and we're going to start Handmaids, and that's on the list. And I've seen the first three episodes of I Love Dick, and then my wife was like, what are you doing? We need to watch that together. So it always just starts kind of piling up fundamentally. Mm. And so the idea that... I will say, like, I watch a lot of CNN. Mm. Um, that's kind of uh, when I go to bed at night, I'll watch any one of these shows, and then I do like 20 minutes of CNN. It actually perversely calms me in some way. So I am a news junkie and I listen to a lot of political podcasts and all that stuff. So I don't know if that's surprising, but basically, like, outside my window of all the prestige television that I'm deeply engaged by, I would say, like, I've, I've become disproportionately political over the course of the last couple of years. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah. You uh, just sort of mentioned how there's all this television out there. And now increasingly, you know, there, you can get movies in so many different ways. There's so much just content, I guess, to use a, a, a word for it that I think is not entirely honest, but like makes sense. At least you're not calling it IP. Jeez <laughs> yeah, Louise. As someone who does this stuff, like, do you feel that strain of there's all this stuff? How is, you know, my thing going to stand out? For sure. And then the question behind that one is, what does standing out really mean anymore? Right. In terms of 
I think that we can all agree that just on an empirical level, this is us stands out. Mm -hmm. Stranger Things stands out. But I also think, you know, Transparent stands out Mm -hmm. for entirely different reasons. Um, Or uh, there's the show Patriot that now, like, I haven't seen, I've been in five random encounters and people haven't said to me, oh, have you seen Patriot? They've said to me, you would love Patriot. (laughs) So it's almost like it's now standing out and I, I have to be completely honest with you, as a purveyor of pop culture, and I didn't even know what Patriot was yeah. until that happened. So it's like, but now Patriot is standing out mm. in the very tiny sphere that is Damon Lindelof's sphere of influence, <laughs> you know? And so I think that anything that that people around you, your own monkey sphere, is curating for you can stand out because it's just become super niche, like basically— in the pop culture sphere, everybody is living on like one block in fucking Brooklyn. <laughs> and it's just sort of like, I'm going to that artisanal cheese shop. I'm going shopping at that particular grocery store. Like, you know, I'm getting my beard groomed at this, you know, it becomes so so specific. So this is a very long-winded answer to your very elegant, simple question. But I think that my goal is to basically make something that is hopefully different and distinct from the stuff that I've done before, mm-hmm. you know, but it also feels like they're tied together in some way. You can draw a straight line from Lost to the Leftovers and certainly Crossing Jordan and, and Nash Bridges. That that was a joke. Those weren't my shows. But um, but I want people to say like, oh, that there's a similarity there, yet these fe- these things feel uniquely different. And I'll say like the rub on, you know, on some of my favorite writers uh, the people who made me want to do this job, who I look at ins- as inspirations and and they're brilliant and they're geniuses. But someone like, uh, you know, David Kelly or Aaron Sorkin, it's sort of like, oh, you know, he's just doing West Wing again, but this time it's at a, you know, behind the scenes at SNL mm-hmm. and he's just doing West Wing again. Now it's, at, now it's news. Um, I'm not entirely sure that I completely and totally subscribe to those theories, but I think that in order to stand out, you have to do something different from what you've done uh, before. And, and that's a big deal. And then the second part of it is I just want to be someone's favorite show. Mm -hmm. You know, it is important to me. I'm not sitting, you know, in my small office going, I'm just making this for me, man. Like I would have chosen a different medium uh, than television if it was just for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have something that's important to communicate. I don't know what it is until I start exploring it through other incredibly talented artists. And then that helps me sort of realize, oh, that's what I'm, I'm trying to say. That's what they're trying to say. I'm going to help them try what they're trying to say because that's the thing that I couldn't articulate myself. But if someone outside of that room watches it on a screen somewhere and essentially says, this is my favorite thing, just one person in a realm of, you know, 500 shows on at any one time, let alone... I don't know what the number has got to be in terms of scripted television since the dawn of the medium that just basically exist. But if there's a human being out there who says The Leftovers is my favorite show, um, that's that's standing out. You would like Patriot, by the way. Oh, it's, it's, there you go. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I started it and was kind of like, I don't know what this is doing. And then by the end, I was like, yeah. That's my favorite is. kind of television. You know, <laughs> I know you're a Halt and Catch Fire fan as I well, am. too, which Halt is I've become an evangelist for that show. Yes. And I'm amazed at how many people go, what is that? Yeah. I haven't even heard of that. And I'm like, they, they've made three seasons of this show. <laughs> Patriot, you go like, all right, it, they just finished their first season. But, mm-hmm. you know, Halt and Catch Fire. Um, and that's a title you remember, Halt and Catch Fire. Like, Patriot's a little generic. Absolutely. <laughs> it's so good. I can't wait for that show so uh, you, to come back. You had Lost, which was this mega hit 
sort of at the center of the zeitgeist for all six years it was on. And then The Leftovers, brilliant show, but not at the center of the zeitgeist, let's say. What did you like about each of those experiences? And then also, what did you sort of find trying about uh, being in the spotlight and out of the spotlight? Well, I didn't like it when Lost was first in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, that's just the, uh, the honest truth. The fact of the matter is, is if you would asked me when I walked out of JJ's office after the first time that we met, and it felt like this guy who I had essentially been a fan of and idolized treated me as an equal and was like, we should, we should have another meeting about this thing. If I walked out and you came running up to me with a microphone and just said like, you know, how do you feel? You just had a meeting with JJ Abrams and it looks like he wants to make a pilot with you. I would have said, this is the greatest thing in the world and I want the show to be huge and I want everyone to watch it and I want it, you know, I want it to enjoy the same level of sort of critical and uh, audience attention as Alias did and does because it was in its third year at that point. And that's what I'm wishing for. As the process of Lost basically went on and JJ made it very clear that he would be leaving mm-hmm. after the pilot and I was 30 years old at the time and um, and that I was going to be in charge I started to be filled with sort of a responsibility dread of like, I don't think I'm going to be capable of doing this. But then more of an existential dread, which is you set an ambition for yourself. You know, like, what do I want to accomplish with my my life? What is my goal? And in the space of literally like four weeks, I passed that goal. And then like, I was shooting up so high that I couldn't breathe. Mm -hmm. Like, and the only thing that was grounding me was my secret wish that the pilot would not be picked up. And it would be this really cool thing like Heat Vision and Jack where it was like ABC made this super expensive pilot and it was really good and cool. But then Lloyd Braun, who was running ABC at the time, got fired and it just they never made a second episode of Lost. But this thing is like really cool in the Pantheon. And then we actually got the call from from ABC, from Steve McPherson saying, we're not picking the show up. Mm. Um, and what I experienced in that moment was both simultaneous relief and also depression, where mm. it was sort of like, oh, now I kind of wanted to make some more Lost, but thank God I don't have to. And then two days later, we got another call that was like, you're going to New York. The show's going to be on the, the air in September. Mm. So I got to experience, you know, the Lori Garvey thing, she, you know, it, you know, both feelings of she's dead and now she's back alive again. And so then we went actually to shoot the pilot. But while we were shooting the pilot, they were asking for a series Bible. So we convened this group of writers, Javier Grigio Markswatch, who's a tremendous writer, David Fury, tremendous writer, Jennifer Johnson, Christian Taylor, great writer. They were back in LA and I would call in every afternoon from the set and we would spitball ideas for Lost the series. And we had to make this kind of series Bible. It's out there on the internet somewhere and it's, it's kind of laughable. Hmm. Not that we didn't, not, not, not that there wasn't some really important work done in that room, but in terms of what the show eventually ended up being, that document existed to basically convince ABC that the show wasn't going to be weird. Um, <laughs> and it's full of lies, as, uh, as all great religious texts are. And in any, in any case, at that point, I was wishing, oh, God, please don't let them pick the show up. Mm-hmm. And they did. And then we were off to the races and then we were making it. And in the space of sort of like five episodes, I was ready to quit the show. I was like completely and totally emotionally exhausted, commuting between LA and and Hawaii, managing, you know, 350 people. There were all sorts of, as you might imagine, logistical issues. And then I had to write these scripts where it was sort of like, what is an episode of Lost? Like there was no precinct. There was no emergency room. There was no court of law. So I was just you know, and then the show premiered and 
at that point, everybody was kind of hedging. I think ABC actually had no idea. Whatever testing they did, they were just not prepared for what the numbers were actually going to be. And when I got that call on the Thursday morning, basically saying, I don't know, it was like, you know, 15 million people watched the show or it was the most watched drama series on ABC in five or six years until Desperate Housewives premiered a couple days later. Mm -hmm. But I was like, in that moment, there was no joy at all. Like, there was only like, oh, my God, I have to make more of these. And so it was that idea. We all have this dream, right? I'm assuming you've had it too, which mm-hmm. it's just one of these crazy dreams where you are out on a, a stage, yeah. you know, and you don't know your lines mm-hmm. and maybe you're naked too. But it's just like that was how I was feeling. And it was a profound dosage of the emperor has no clothes and all the all the insecurities that writers, basic, most, most writers are dealing with or artists or humans of any kind sort of like, I'm going to fall on my face now and everybody's going to see. Like, everybody is watching now. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until Carlton came in around episode nine and, and I had a true partner and an experienced individual who would basically, like, chill me out and calm me down and took the reins on a lot of the things that I was incapable of doing myself. And I was able to focus on the storytelling. In that space between seasons one and seasons two, when I think that Lost was basically at its peak, where we hadn't had the season two premiere yet, but there was that long summer where everybody was into the show and we won the drama Emmy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm walking up to the Emmy stage and there's JJ and we had agreed that JJ would give the speech if the show somehow won and he pushed the Emmy into my hand and just stepped back and suddenly I'm there giving the speech. I'm basically like, oh, this is cool. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm into this now. But then it was just up and down the entire time it was on because... I did feel the crushing weight of I don't deserve this, yeah. you know, which is a, just a fascinating aspect of of what most humans experience when they achieve that level of success. If you're not Donald Trump, he's basically like, I deserve more than this. <laughs> but everybody else, normal human beings, you just lack the capacity to um, to have the light shining on them that brightly. And also, we certainly didn't invent the engagement through the internet with the fan base that was already happening with Joss and JJ to some degree and and certainly Chris Carter before Lost came along. But like Twitter was starting and recaps were starting to become think pieces and Lost basically invited this level of, of sort of scrutiny. And so I was really on that stage. That was no longer just a dream. Like that was a real thing that was happening to me. And so there was a lot of terror involved a lot of the time. To pivot to the leftovers, it was just really nice to not be on that stage. Mm. Like... There wasn't, I think, an expectation from HBO in the beginning. We want the show to be a hit show. And then I think once they read the pilot and they picked it up, regardless, they started to understand this show is probably more in a in a wire, treme, you know, enlightened space than it is in a Game of Thrones space. And we, we, we don't have that expectation for it to be on the cover of Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. We don't have an expectation for people to be like for you to go on Good Morning America or the Jimmy Kimmel show and explain what the stag means. It was playing in sort of a different uh, field, which was just a tremendous relief. Now, it would have been nice to have a little bit more viewership. It would have been nice to uh, to be a little bit more, at least in the critical zeitgeist. But the fact of the matter is, is we hadn't earned that yet. Mm. I mean, you and I have talked and the culture, I think, writ large has talked about season one, particularly in hindsight. You know, I haven't read any unfair 
uh, writing about season one. I think like there's a glass half full presentation of season one, which is that we were figuring things out and there's some really good episodes in there. Um, and had season one not existed, season two and seasons three could not be appreciated on the level that they are. That's true. Mm-hmm. There's a glass half empty, which is episode two is almost unwatchable, mm-hmm. you know, like the A story in in episode two, and by the way, that's when there were still A story, B story, C story, which the show never should have been, but the A story is Kevin loses his bagel in the toaster, <laughs> and Dean may or may not be real. I mean, I just, I literally am experiencing nausea as I'm, you know, recapping that for you. Right. So, you know, we had to make mistakes. We had to, you know, we had to try things in order to actually find the show, but it's sort of like, am I allowed to say, like, why aren't you loving leftovers? Because it wasn't worthy of love yet. Mm. Um, So all the things that happened subsequently as season two began to air, and we started feeling this thing in the the writer's room and on the set, and now Mimi was there, which was a huge deal, and Speezy Alley was there, which was a huge deal. Not to mention, again, I can't mention them enough, the incredible writers on the show. We started feeling oh, we like this now. And then that feeling started translating to the people who had basically stuck it out. But now it was sort of the equivalent of uh, of being three games down, yeah. you know, in a seven-game series. So we had to kind of scrap our way back. And so the idea of suddenly now, like, people aren't going to erase it's not like The Wire, right, where you say, like, the season one of The Wire kind of sucks. It's like, yeah. no, you have to you have to watch two or three episodes to really understand the density, the Dickensian aspects of The Wire, but Mm -hmm. those early episodes are brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even people who love The Leftovers have to give that caveat of, you know, season one ain't going to be easy, but you do kind of have to start there. Yeah. Um, That's a bitter pill to swallow. It's, you know, it is a very much an eat your vegetables kind of missive. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing against the powerful vegetable lobby. (laughs) I actually love looking for great people. I love looking for great people to hire. I love looking for great people to work with. I love looking for great writers, great editors, great talent. But it can be hard to find those folks. You know, they're out there, but it's it's sometimes hard to make sure that the right people are applying to the jobs that I want to see them for. And that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You can simply screen and rate and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. You can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. When I first moved out to L.A., one of the first things I did was I, I went to a, a, a presentation by Joss Whedon. This is when Joss Whedon was sort of in the in the wilderness. Uh, it was after Serenity. He was uh-huh. working on Wonder Woman, but before, like, Dollhouse and his comeback. Comeback. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the things he said that's always stuck with me is that TV is about asking questions and movies are about providing answers. And I don't think that's mm. always true. But I think in the sense of, like, mainstream American film and television, it's probably true. 
And as someone who makes TV shows that ask a lot of questions, how, like, how do you feel about that statement? And do you think that that television, The Leftovers was almost deliberately anti-answer at points, if that makes sense? And I think that was a good thing about it. But do you think that television has an obligation to eventually provide answers? Oh, there's a lot there to unpack. First <laughs> off, Joss Whedon is a very smart guy, and I mm-hmm. never heard that one before, and, and, I, and I like it, and uh, will we'll therefore appropriate it. Uh, but I have to say, like, I can't attribute it just to Joss, right? I have to be like, Todd told me once <laughs> that he went to go see Joss. Um, what I would say is that the television, to me, that sticks, mm-hmm. you know, and this is the kind of television that I want to make. When you say to someone who watches that show, what's that show about? That their answer should not be plot. Mm-hmm. You know, that their an- if you basically say, like, what's Mad Men about? You shouldn't. It shouldn't be like... It's about this guy, Don Draper, and he works at this place called Sterling Cooper, and he's a pretty good advertising executive, and he's cheating on his wife, and, like, that's the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. You know, the right answer is it's sort of like an existential meditation on what it is like to be alive in the 1950s and into the 1960s at a time that our culture was undergoing a great transition, particularly if you were a white, upper-class man who was working in New York City you know, in terms of its sexual politics, in terms of its race politics, in terms of its gender politics. But ultimately, it's about, you know, the person that you pretend to be versus the person that you actually are. That's how I want to answer that question. So when someone says, you know, what's The Leftovers about? It's okay to lead with 2% of the world's population disappears because that contextualizes it. But hopefully what comes next isn't, you know, a description of the things that are happening. Mm -hmm. What comes next is a description of, the deeper themes of the show, or more importantly, what your emotional response is to the show. Mm -hmm. And to make television is about intimacy. It's about emotional response. Unlike the movies, which are basically projected at a scale that is 10 times normal size, that's a religious experience. That's God. You go in, it's like church, right? You you sit in seats surrounded by other people. Um, you know, there's music. Uh, there, you know, it's, it's a two-hour-long uh, process, just like many religious ceremonies. It calls for a certain—you're supposed to be quiet as you watch it. You're not allowed to talk. Mm. You know, uh, it, there's, there's ushers to come through and chide you. Sometimes there are snacks. Um, but television is in your house. It is in your living room and it's scaled most, you know, if you don't have like a ginormous flat screen TV, uh, and even if you do, it's scaled much more to life. You're inviting these people into your home. Now we, people watch things on their phones or their iPads, literally a foot away from their face. And this medium is incredibly intimate and personal and is is designed to basically evoke maximum emotion and connection. And if it's not doing those things, it's not necessarily failing, mm. but it's not living up to its potential. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say when I was growing up as a kid going to church and it was communion week, I always thought, oh, good, this is the week we get snacks. Mm. Um, I didn't quite grasp the significance for yeah. for some time. Um, Body of Christ, Chip. You can't have just one. <laughs> um, your shows are so interested in uh, – you, you always are careful to say that, you know, they're not about – mental illness, but they kind of bump up against it. Like they're about, they, they bump up against depression or obsession or, uh, you know, just, just this idea of, of grief, especially on the leftovers. And what is it about you that that's interested in that arena of who we are as human beings? I guess that's just the experience that I'm having. I mean, when, 
I'm 44 years old now and just basically existing on the planet. I've obviously sort of had my, my, my own journey. Um, I've suffered the loss of my father, which is a very profound experience to lose a parent. Um, that happened in my late 20s. And I would say that I have never struggled with depression because that would be insulting to people who really struggle with, you know, chemical depression. Mm -hmm. I've had moments in my life, like the one that I described to you, where if I were listening to this, I'd be like, you were sad about the success of Lost, but I also feel like that experience makes sense if I can do a good job of explaining it. The mm -hmm. idea that, you know, life can be very lonely and isolating. I'm really interested in sort of exploring those ideas. And a lot of the people that I run into are sort of plagued by this idea of, I shouldn't I be happy? You know, I'm looking around, I'm married to someone that I love. I've got great kids. I like my job. Why am I not happy? And then they sort of beat themselves up for that. And I also think that there's this really interesting thing happening in millennial culture. I was listening to the Invisibilia podcast and they were talking to this uh, woman who uh, developed this sort of psychological reaction when she was out on uh, dates with other women that she would, you know, she'd get sick. She'd vomit because she was feeling anxiety about whether this person liked them or whether she was saying the right things, et cetera, et cetera. And she was reflecting back on her parents basically telling her when she was a kid. And I think that she, she seemed millennial aged, mm -hmm. maybe a little older, but she was basically saying that her parents said to her over and over again, we just want you to be happy. Like whatever you do, like we're okay with it. Just, we just want you to be happy. And that actually puts like a huge burden on people because yeah. then they're like, wow, my parents don't even care if I make a lot of money or if I marry well or they just, I need to be happy mm. versus basically just fundamentally accepting you can't have happiness all the time. Mm. And, um, and you only appreciate it after profound and intense periods of sadness. Mm. And I'm interested in, in exploring these sort of cycles of, of emotion. So if you're married to someone for 50 years, all the people that I've spoken to, when you go to their 50-year anniversary dinner, they both sort of say the same, a version of the same story, which is there were a couple years there where, wow, like it was almost over, or I really hated you for at least seven of those 50 years. And everybody laughs, yeah. but it's not a joke. Yeah. And in response to sort of the finale of The Leftovers, people are, are sort of like, I don't know about, I don't know about Nora and Kevin. I don't know if they should be together. And mm. I'm like, great, mm. you know? great that you're having that feeling because guess what? Like just because they're holding hands at the end of this journey, you know, they've still got to be alive mm -hmm. and I want them to be together. And I feel like they're closer now than they ever were before, but it's going to be a struggle, man. And mm -hmm. as a writer, I want to dramatize that str struggle. I want, I want it to feel as real as possible through the most unreal lens imaginable. Mm -hmm. You also do a lot of stories about people talking to God in essence, or hoping to talk to God. Mm -hmm. um, I think always, uh, I think my favorite arc in Lost was was John Locke. I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen Lost, but like his whole journey to talk to God, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And that's come up again at The Leftovers and some of your film work. Are you someone who, I don't want to ask you if you're you're a believer, but like, do you do you believe ever, I guess is what I'm saying, in, in some sort of supernatural, all pervasive presence? that we can talk to somehow. Just to cycle back to a number of the things that we've been talking about from sitting in the movie theater as, as religious church-like experience to your first question, which was like, when did I want to do this? And it was Star Wars. I'm into the force. Here's what I like about the force. The force feels right. It's a spiritual energy that sort of binds us all together. Every 
sort of every living thing and you can kind of tap into it. You can ask it for help. It flows through you and you can call upon it for good and evil simultaneously, but it's an it. For, it's genderless, right? So it's not a he. Mm-hmm. It's not something that has corporal form. So it's no one has ever said like, hey, let's go talk to the force. Mm-hmm. You know, now there are Jedi out there and and and, and they, they seem to have, you know, some ability to manipulate the force more than others. And once you get into the area of midichlorians, then the force, then you start to not like it as much, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I think God is a fucking midichlorian. You know, it's 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 just basically a construct that synthesizes and and simplifies and makes it's God for dummies. Mm. Um, and so I don't like the idea of a judgmental God that can basically hit you with a hammer or forgive you. Um, I, I I I I've I've never subscribed to that, but I am fascinated by how that idea came to be and what's so appealing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know why heaven is appealing. Like that makes sense to me is like when you die, you get to sort of be together with all the people that you ever loved for eternity. But I don't know why there needs to be God in that construct in order for people to accept and believe in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand why hell exists because we we do have, I believe, that there is like a moral switch inside of all of us, a conscience as it will, that, you know, is more part of our survival mechanism and our biology than it is, you know, a a, a larger religious construct. But I think we know the difference between good and bad without it having to be taught to us because when you do something bad, you traditionally feel bad. Mm -hmm. I think there's this idea of like, oh, that guy is a a murderer or that he just shot like three innocent people. Um, He's a monster. But, you know, when you actually... Uh, sit down and talk to even the most horrific people, you know, um, they have a story to tell. Mm. And that doesn't mean that they're they're worthy of sympathy, but there was like a fascinating, an, an yet another podcast where I think that they were, talk, they were talking to suicide bombers, mm-hmm. um, ones who tried to detonate their vests and the vest didn't detonate. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to, to unpack why were you doing uh, what you, we were really curious about it. And their answer to a T was kind of the same, which is I wanted to have a legacy. I wanted my life to mean something. And the only way that I felt like I, that I could be seen and I could be visible in addition to the fact that my parents were going to be compensated monetarily if I did this so that there was actually, you know, a a monetary incentive. It wasn't really about this idea that we're fed, that I'm going to go and there are going to be you know, lots of virgins to have sex with in some afterlife. They had very pragmatic, real-world concerns about what drove them towards this horrific action. And again, that does—I condemn that that sort of behavior on every level, but there is a a basic human emotion underlying it. Mm. And that's, I think, really fascinating and worth discussing. Mm. You've made two shows now about sort of being stuck in purgatory, not literally, (laughs) but you know what I mean. Um, My wife is agnostic but always says that she likes to believe hell exists, which is strange. Do you have an easier time thinking if the afterlife exists, that heaven or hell, which one of those two would you rather be real, I guess? Obviously not in terms of like, I want to go to hell, but you know what I mean? Like there is this psychological need they both fulfill. Mm -hmm. And which one do you sort of gravitate toward in terms of, yeah, I think that could be true. I guess if I had to pick you know, my answer to what happens when you die, what feels the nicest, I gravitate more towards the Eastern religions Mm -hmm. or even sort of like the the ancient Egyptian traditions minus all the gods where you go to the river Lee, then you drink and you forget your life. This sort of idea of 
you know, reincarnation, I think is, is really interesting that you just kind of go on the cycle, but you know, heaven and hell Mm -hmm. don't really hold a lot of interest for me personally, in terms of like, that's a place that I want to go because they're overly simplistic and I want to go, I want to be part of something more complex. Then what's interesting to you about Christian symbology? Because both of your shows are laden with it. Well, Christianity is somewhat kind of fetishized for me because I was raised Jewish. Mm -hmm. And when you're basically subjected to an Old Testament God and the Jewish faith is is essentially that God is someone that you're supposed to be scared of. Mm -hmm. God is someone who you know, is always punishing people. So it's sort of like he creates the Garden of Eden, but then he puts the forbidden fruit there. So God's a troll, right? Like, it's sort of like, just don't eat the fruit, Eve. Like, why put it there in the first place? Like, Mm -hmm. everything is a test, you know? And it's sort of like, what do you think is going to happen when you go up Sinai, Moses? What do you, you know, like, these people have just been enslaved in Egypt and you're Mm going to test them again Mm -hmm. right out of the gate? And so, and I've talked about Job exhaustively, but that's like, that's the one that really stuck with me too, not to mention Abraham and Isaac. So this is not like, and and we're going and we're worshiping this guy, you know, and more importantly, there is no heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no hell. It's just basically like, you know, you die and we're not entirely sure what happens. Mm-hmm. Like here's the Torah and here's the Talmud where a lot of rabbis sort of are blogging at each other and writing think pieces about what they, what are, what's to extrapolate, but we don't know. It's a big shrug. Mm-hmm. I've come to sort of embrace Judaism now as a storyteller. I think that's kind of awesome in, in, in some levels, minus the God's construct. But when I was a kid, my friends who were Christian were basically like, oh, we're going to heaven. Yeah. And there's this guy, he's not a God, he's a human. His name's Jesus. He died for our sins. So all the things that you do wrong, all you have to do is basically ask Jesus for forgiveness. But you have to mean it, Mm. you know, but he will forgive you. Um, That is a super appealing idea. And one, you know, that to me was I celebrated Christmas growing up. Uh, Spoiler alert, you find out at like seven or or eight that there is no Santa and that's really upsetting. The world is a little bit less magical, but there's Jesus and adults Hmm. are like, I don't know. Yeah, there's no Santa, but there is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Grownups, you know, presidents of the United States talk about Jesus Christ. And so I was like, who's that guy? (laughs) And I just kind of became fascinated by Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We're going to move on to leftover spoiler talk in just a second here, but I noticed on your IMDb page that it says you worked on Undressed. Oh, sure. And that is one of my, like, favorite, like, weird shows that existed at a time. Just, like, when I was in college, it was always on, it felt like, which I watched TV at, like, 2 in the morning. So that's why it was always on. What was it like to work on Undressed? First off, I have to say, if I'm allowed to plug another pod, I just did Dinner Party Download with Rico Galliano, mm-hmm. um, who was on the staff with me at Undressed. Huh. He, I, have that, I, I did that in like 1998 or 99, mm-hmm. and he walked into the room, and I, he was like, do you remember me? And I was like, I do remember you from somewhere, but I can't quite put my finger on it, because we only worked together for six weeks. The mm-hmm. undre- so the Undressed Writers Room, to answer your question— um, we wrote 35 episodes of Undressed in six weeks, um, uh, half-hour format. Yeah. And as as you may remember, there's basically three sets. There's a high school set, which is basically like a row of lockers. Then there is a college set, which mm-hmm. is dorm room. And then there is a just-graduated-from-college set, which is an apartment with a hot tub in the back. Mm-hmm. And so the goal, Steve DeKnight, who went into the Whedonverse and I think is now and, and did um, uh, Spartacus mm-hmm. and is now directing 
directing uh, Pacific Rim 2. He was the showrunner mm. of, uh, uh, along with this woman, Jules Selbo, of Undressed. And essentially, you know, we would write these scenes. You know, they had to be exactly like three and a half pages mm. um, so that they could go down to the set, et cetera. And he'd basically like read the scene and he'd be like, you got to pop the top. Mm. He's like, what? Someone's got to pop the top. <laughs> so the the literal goal and every the, – the actor's intention, the writer's intention, the director's intention in every three-and-a-half-minute-long scene of Undressed was to move the characters towards getting literally undressed, mm. not figuratively. So – um, as you might imagine, that was both sort of freeing and limiting simultaneously. Mm. But uh, it was boot camp for the way the television is made because when you have to write that fast mm. and you make that much television in, in such a short period of time, especially with the constraints and the limitations, that idea of essentially saying, this is all you've got to do this, um, I think was an incredibly invaluable experience mm. and one that I would not trade for anything. Everybody is a fan of something. If you've been listening to this podcast at all, you can probably tell that I am a fan of the shows of Damon Lindelof, Lost, and The Leftovers. They both have just hit me in exactly the right place at exactly the right time, and both are shows that I will I will treasure and hang on to forever. And uh, I think that I have a podcast that you may be interested in if you're a fan of pretty much anything. Fan Club is a brand new podcast about the future of fandom. Brought to you by Viacom, home of MTV, Comedy Central, BET, Nickelodeon, and Paramount. It's hosted by Ross Martin. Fan Club is about why we love what we love. Every episode, Fan Club focuses on a different aspect of what it means to be a fan by talking to some of the smartest people in entertainment across music, food, fashion, art, and media. Guests have included Charlemagne the God, Tom Colicchio, and many more. Fan Club's going to change the way you think about the things you love. This week, Ross talks to his fellow sneakerheads Ron Ferris of Nike and Ryan Babenzian about their shared obsessions with kicks. Listen now by subscribing to Fan Club on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to go to leftovers spoiler talk now. So if you haven't seen it uh, for some Great reason, pivot you, you from undressed go. to leftovers. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, sort of the the polar opposites. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go watch it immediately. Uh, if you have, please stick around. So you mentioned earlier, you know, leftovers wasn't a huge hit. It wasn't Game of Thrones. It wasn't on magazine covers. Imagine an alternate universe where it was. Would you have wanted it to run longer than three seasons, or? Did you feel like because you've said in other inter interviews that the ending it with this season was sort of your idea? Did you feel like three seasons was a perfect length for this story? In hindsight, yes, mm -hmm. um, and I think certainly by the by the time that we got to the end of the the second season, it definitely felt like three seasons was the was the perfect amount. I will just tell you the only way for me to really answer that question as honestly as humanly possible is before we even started writing the pilot you know, before The Leftovers existed, how would I have answered that question? Because it was asked of me by both Parada and Thoreau, mm -hmm. who once the pilot did exist was sort of like, they're asking me to sign like a six year contract. Like, what's your intention? I was telling them, I think that The Leftovers should be, its ideal length is 40 episodes. Mm -hmm. A, 40 is a nice biblical number for some reason. It's, you know, that's, that's, that's the number of years that uh, that the that the Jews are wandering the uh, the desert before they reach the promised land. Four seasons, ten episodes each. That actually that's what it feels like before we actually get into it and start doing it. Right. Your question becomes more and more difficult to answer because there were so many different factors sort of swirling around it. Had had the show been more successful, I'm not entirely sure HBO would have let us end it. I mean, mm. there's not really any precedent for a show that is super successful 
ending after three seasons. Mm -hmm. um, or there would have been a tremendous amount of pushback. Even Benioff and Weiss, I think my guess is, and I don't have any inside information, but it was not an easy sell for them to end Game of Thrones, mm. even though they've now lapped George's books. And George said that there was going to be a very finite ending for Game of Thrones. It's sort of like, you know that someone was saying over at HBO, could you just get it to 10 seasons? Mm. Because I did have that experience on Lost where it was a battle for three years, for two years, mm -hmm. to basically get them to end the show. And they said to Carlton and I, we're not going to do it. And we went all the way down the road of letting our contracts expire. We had a succession plan in place. And only midway through the third season when finally the audience and the critical community started saying, good God, I don't know how much longer I can take this. ABC did a calculation where they were like, how long do we think the show would survive without Cuse and Lindelof? And how long do, can we talk them into doing it? And their opening salvo midway through season three was, can you do, well, we're going to let you end the show. Mm -hmm. Huge relief after 10 years, huh. you know? And we, we were like, no, we want to end it after the fourth season. And they were like, nine years. Mm. We were like, five years? They were like, eight years. <laughs> so six was a huge victory for us. Um, but I, if something is successful, if it is on the cover of magazines, I think that you start to not only get influenced by the fact that the people want more and you, you don't want to disappoint the fans, like in an alternate universe where The Leftovers is a huge smash hit, both with viewers and culturally, if we announce we're ending the show after three years, what's the reaction to that? Mm -hmm. Like, boo, <laughs> you know, like I've gotten all invested in the show and it's a huge hit. And now you're going to take your toys and go home. Why? Yeah. Because this, your precious story is ending. So it's very hard for me to imagine the, um, the, the sideways that you're pitching. Mm, sure. Sure. Season three was slightly shorter than seasons one and two, where there's stories you wanted to tell that maybe weren't in there. Um, myself, I felt like if I like, I love the season, obviously, but I, if mm -hmm. I had gotten, like, a Murphy episode, sure. that was kind of what I had wanted. Yep, yep. I'm on the record saying that before you mm. uh, mentioned it, and um, I definitely feel like there were scheduling issues with Regina um, mm -hmm. because she was doing American Crime and um, also directing a number of, of episodes, but I think that had we asked her and, and the Australia of it all would have been challenging for her, but we would have figured out a way to do an episode in Texas mm -hmm. that that was very Murphy-centric one more time, probably mm -hmm. before John went to Australia. Somewhere it, that in a 10-episode final season of The Leftovers, that probably would have been episode four, mm -hmm. which was where are John and, Mur uh, and Erica at now? And all the other thing that I kind of feel like we owed was Michael and Jill, mm -hmm. um, sort of like uh, what happened to those two now that they're stepbrother and stepsister? And uh, is that something interesting to explore? So that that's definitely a road not taken. And then I, I think that in a 10-episode final season of The Leftovers, there would have just been the X Factor episode where we could have just gone down. I always wanted to do that, which was basically like, there's just, let's just do Pillar Man, you know? Mm. Like, as opposed to him falling off that thing at the beginning of episode two, you know, what if that's the ending of episode two and the whole episode is basically told from the point of view of this guy up there, hmm. you know, and who is he and what is he doing up there? And like, let's humanize this guy who is basically just a, like a piece of background. Because this is one of the things that I, you know, again, I'm this isn't me like, oh, I have a social conscience. It's actually m more exploitative than that, which is, especially if you have a kid and you walk by homeless people and, and your kid basically goes like, 
why was that guy talking to himself? And you suddenly go like, oh, I don't even pay attention to that guy anymore because it's too painful yeah. or too upsetting or it makes me too uncomfortable to even, they're literally invisible to me now, but the, but my kid can see them. And so now I start just trying to 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 see those people. And I think I see Pillar Man like that too, where it's sort of like, let's see the people that are are traditionally unseen and do an episode like that. So mm. I think like in it, in it, and we had always kind of like, flirted with the idea. And so that entire gag just becomes, hey, this guy is somehow maybe worked with killer whales at some point. Mm. That's the only taste you get of the episode that never was. Mm. But I, 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 I kind of feel like that that would have been a fun excursion. I would love the Mark Lynn Baker episode. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that I think, um, that's the spinoff that Seppenwall wants, which is <laughs> uh, assuming we take Nora's final story at face value it stands to reason that somewhere in that space of time, she looked up Marklin Baker as well, and the two of them, and he is now obviously with Bronson mm-hmm. and uh, and the the other two leads of uh, of Perfect Strangers, and they're probably performing old episodes of Perfect Strangers. <laughs> it's probably like the number one show in the two percent world. Um, the ratings are low, but uh, <laughs> but comparatively very high. It's the only show where the, o- the entire cast is there. Have you read the book uh, Station? I haven't, but um, uh, yeah, here it's great. There's that's, a theater, there's, that's the Shakespeare. Yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. theater troupe that performs old Star Trek episodes. I'm oh, just right. imagining the Perfect Strangers cast traveling yes. around. And, yes. Um, that final monologue of Nora's, you've talked about it a lot in other pieces, but uh, I'm wondering, obviously you're not going to tell me if you believe it or not, but did everybody, did you guys in the room come to a unanimous decision on whether you believed it or not? Or was it again another thing where you guys were kind of split? That's a great question. And I think that the honest answer to it is that it evolved. Mm. And so at any given time, I wouldn't say that there was a split, but there was a difference of opinion. But the one place that there was unanimous consent was to do it the way that we did it. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we we had to consider every possibility, starting with the idea that we show it, you know. And so I was like, what if we show it? What if we, you know, what if we show, as, as opposed to it being a monologue or or Nora's giving the monologue and we're cutting to flashes of it, that we literally just, at the very end of the episode, the audience is thinking they're never going to show us what her subjective experience was once that thing filled up with water. If we showed it, what would it be? Well, that pitch actually ended up being the monologue. Mm-hmm. You know, here's what happens to Nora. And this, that's where the vividness of clothes hanging on racks and the, and the light and the couple that she goes and talks to, those were all originally pitched as like, let's say that that was the experience. Parada's response to that is, we absolutely are not going to show it. No, mm-hmm. no way. That's not the show. And I don't remember digging in and saying we have to show it. Uh, Patrick Somerville basically said, she just tells it, you know, that's what it is. And when he said that, then we had unanimous affirmation. And that was a smaller room. We hadn't hired some of the season three writers yet. When they came in, we basically pitched them. Here's what we came up with. And there was still some discussion as to who Nora was telling the story to. We got to a place that it was Kevin. So I think all the writers and and uh, and certainly Mimi Leader, who I, I almost consider a writer in many ways, even though she's not in that room, we're channeling her because she's got to actually realize this stuff. And then the actors uh, were all uh, in unanimous consent that this was the best way to do it. But I think that if you basically stopped and and polled each one of us, do you believe Nora's story? Or if it was you and you alone who got to be the final say 
on whether or not Nora's story is, I'm making air quotes right now, true, mm-hmm. as in it literally happened, you might find a variance of opinion. Do you think there would have been a way to depict it while maintaining, say, the ambiguity of when Kevin goes to what he thinks is the afterlife, what, but some people would say is not? No, because Kevin is having the subjective, he is having that subjective experience of being in that space. So, and we made it very clear afterwards, he basically, he comes out of the ground and then, um, in the beginning of the next episode, he's talking to Michael and he's like, I was in a hotel. So Mm -hmm. you're basically like, oh, that happened for him. Mm -hmm. He's not like senior is in referring to the television experience in the God's tongue where, where senior is like, oh, I was tripping on God's tongue. I don't, I don't, I don't remember seeing you, Kevin. Mm-hmm. So that's more of a subjective experience. But if the character believes that it was true, then us showing it is fair. So the audience knows, oh, Kevin had the same experience that I did. And, and Kevin believes that it's real because when Tom asked him at the beginning of season three, have you ever killed, you know, and Kevin says, oh, I killed someone once. He's talking about that like he really killed someone. It feels like he killed them. Mm-hmm. Um Again, just to get back into that dream space, because I dream, I, we talk about dreams a lot in The Leftovers, and particularly in the third season, you know, the, the, the indigenous peoples of Australia have this idea of dream time that is, is just as real to them as the real world. And so have you ever had a dream where, you know, where you have a horrific fight with Libby and then you wake up and there she is next to you smiling and you're actually physically <laughs> mad at her, yeah, you know, yeah. or she doesn't love you anymore. Have you ever had that dream? And you have to kind of reboot your brain and say like, no, no, that, that wasn't real. Um, it's incredibly vivid, uh, the, the, the space that Kevin goes into, but the OA, which is a show that I, that I kind of loved, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, in its own interesting Zagnuts way, it was just exhilarating to watch and, you know, and whatever nitpicks or missteps you want to say about, you know, where it landed, to me, the most exhilarating part of it was they actually are showing this stuff, the stuff that she's telling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, does that make it real? Like if they're showing the little girl with the oligarch, you know, if they're showing her experience in captivity, because we know certain aspects of this are real because Homer is an actual human character, but the show is also questioning the veracity of her story. So it's, are they cheating mm-hmm. by showing us, well, was usual suspects cheating? Mm-hmm. Half the things you see in usual suspects are not real. They did not happen. They are part of verbal Kent slash Kaiser Soze's story. Spoiler alert. So the, the narrative of telling the story is sort of starting to play with the audience's expectation of what's real, as it should be anytime someone is telling a story. So, you know, when Peter Falk is telling Fred Savage's story in Princess Bride, you know that it's a story. So that's where you basically... Uh, verbal Kint is telling a story in a usual suspect so you can get away with it. So I think that there is this narrative space, but for the finale of the show, you know, um, if you show it, and this was the case, you know, this was the argument that Tom made. And I think it wasn't a long battle. I remember being convinced fairly early on. If you show it, it's not the leftovers anymore. Um, And I couldn't agree with that idea more. And I'm really glad that we did what we did, even though for some it may cause, I understood that it might cause some frustration. It seems like here we are in, in the 48-hour aftermath, and one thing that I've learned is there's an immediate reaction and then there's a legacy reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the legacy reaction to the finale of The Leftovers is going to be, but I think that it's it's been kind of beautiful for people to say, I want to believe her story, and I understand that there is an interpretation that her story wasn't true, but I'm going to go ahead and believe it anyway. And then there are other people who are like, 
I don't want to believe her story. Um, and that makes me feel better about the show that I just watched, but I'm okay with that. And that both of those sentiments and emotions can kind of coexist, mm. you know, sort of validates, uh, the spirit of what Parada fought for and, 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 and the, the eye of the needle that Somerville find, found a way to thread. Tell me about writing that monologue, because, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but on YouTube, there's some British guy who explains the entire mythology of Lost in like six minutes. Oh, no, I haven't seen that. And it's very clear cut. It's true, but it's kind of like, it's also like if they had just had somebody step in and do this in the show, it would have been boring. Right. So like you have this story that ostensibly answers everything, even if it doesn't. You have to write it. Are you talking way, about Lost? Uh, about, Nor- about Norris. Uh-huh, Sorry. yeah. You're, you have to write it in a way that's engaging while it's still just like, here I am telling you a story. How do you approach the task of writing a monologue like that, even if you know Carrie Coon is going to be delivering it? Who's Amazing. The answer is, again, subjective to my own personal memory, and I'm not entirely sure if this is accurate or not. It feels accurate to me. So I reserve the right to uh, be proven wrong. But my memory of it is, is that the story, more or less the way that Nora tells it, came out of that first two-week writer's room session, and I just kind of pitched, this is what, you know— we know that she goes into this thing completely and totally naked. And so she just, she wakes up in the parking lot and here's what she does. And that basically survived until the very end. So when we actually sat down to write it, um, it was already kind of there in the notes. So only minor embellishments like, you know, Dr. Von Echen didn't uh, exist yet by name until we started doing the, uh, introduce the physicists. But we always knew that Nora was going to track down the inventor of the machine and coerce them into building a new, like, that was all there. (laughs) So that was the one thing that we weren't worried about writing in the finale. It was the one thing that existed was like what we were heading towards and probably one of the easier scenes to write just because we had gutted it out (laughs) so early on. But um, we do a lot of our writing in the writer's room. You know, the notes are exhaustive. We talk a lot about dialogue. We talk about the way to button scenes. You know, so almost every episode of The Leftovers is group written in some fashion. And that's not to diminish anything from the draft writers who find lots of things in the process of writing, both their own discoveries and also things that we felt worked in the room but actually don't work on the page. And so the drafts are important too. But certainly in the case of of the ending of the series, you know, we were locked in on Nora's story for quite some time. Mm -hmm. We just didn't know who she was telling it to. Tell me about crafting that second to last episode where you actually do end the world. It's just not the world we're in. (laughs) Um, Did you feel an obligation to have some sort of apocalypse? Yeah, because, you know, that I've talked about this a little bit elsewhere too, but it was the Wizard of Oz and Star Wars. Those were the two, you know, those are the two gospels for me as a child. And the, the amazing thing about the Wizard of Oz is that, it's completely and totally anticlimactic. I mean, you meet the Wizard of Oz, who is basically presenting as some magical, all-knowing, all-seeing God who can give you whatever you want. And then he's just a dude from Kansas who's a liar. And it's a cop-out. He's like, you had all of the—you had a brain all along, Scarecrow. Mm-hmm. You up, oh, Tin Woodsman, you have—you had a heart. Here's some trinkets mm-hmm. to basically represent the things that you had all, all along, you know— Lion, you you're full of courage, and Dorothy, you can get in. You know, I'm I'm gonna head back to Kansas now, arbitrarily for some reason. Now that the witch is dead, you can come with me. And then the the balloon floats off, and she realizes that the slippers that have been on her feet have 
could if she had just tapped them together three times and said there's no place like home from the moment that she slipped them on she could have mm-hmm. gone back that by all metrics is a is a shitty ending and yet it's an amazing ending you yeah. know it's it's a classic that movie came out in what 1939 yeah. you know and it totally holds up so in evaluating the final season of leftovers it was sort of like we're talking about something big is going to happen on the 7 year anniversary but we as an audit, we as writers knew that nothing was going to happen and so how do you make that not feel like a cop out well part 1 is tell the audience nothing's going to happen mm. so we opened the season with nothing happening you can go up on your roof as many times as you want nothing's going to happen you know the world just keeps on ticking so you know we we gave the audience we told them right out of the gate flip to the back of the, you know, of the book, read the last five pages. This is what we're chasing. But then the emotional experience of the penultimate episode, basically saying like, can we just show them what the end of the world looks like? We're flirting with it. We're showing the guy on the, on the sub, basically firing nukes at an undiscovered island, which may or may not be inhabited by Jacob and the man in black. Who knows? <laughs> it's, it's good to destroy that island. That was, that was purgative for me. Um, that was Nick Hughes's idea, um, not ironically, but I think appropriately. And in any case, coming into the seventh episode, the emotional idea was that Kevin needed to destroy this world in the same way that, you know, Clark Kent in Superman 2 wants to give up his powers. Because part of you goes like, why would Super, why, why, why would Superman want to give up his powers? You know, he can do so much good. Like, mm-hmm. just so he can be with Lois, like, he can be with Lois and still have powers. <laughs> but there's just this, like, there's this part of him that he wants to shut off the responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, he wants there will always be someone who needs to be saved. He'll always hear someone screaming in Thailand if if he still has those powers and he wants to make a decision to be more present with the woman that he loves. And so that's the decision that Kevin makes and, and Patty lays it out for him pretty, pretty specifically, which is, you know, you keep saying you want to come home and yet you keep ending up here. That illuminates for him the idea of, oh, I, I've I've always had one foot out the door. As long as I can die and escape, that's why he's putting a bag over his head. That's why he's articulating that he felt more alive in this place than in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because it taps into our end of the world fantasy, which is we don't have to sort out our shit if the world is going to end. It's sort of like, oh, well, now that Trump's president and everything is going to shit, like I'm going to eat all these cheeseburgers because why bother? You know, like why bother caring about fucking anything? Like, yeah. and I'm going to treat the people around me like shit because, you know, we're all going to be dead in t- three years anyway. That's a f- it, it, as dark and depressing as it is. It's actually a fantasy the end of the world. It's why we keep doing the end of the world ad nauseum in all of our popular fiction and even superhero storytelling. It's always like, oh, the world's going to end. We have to prevent the world from ending, but we're actually fetishizing it. Hmm. Um, We're fascinated by it because it basically means like we don't have to suffer anymore. Uh, We don't have to sort things out. We don't have to take responsibility for anything. If if forces outside of our control want the world to end. Mm. How do you remedy that is that you end the world. You get to choose, Todd, whether or not you push the button. And how can you end the world as an affirmation of life? Uh, The same could be said of how could Lori go off the back of that boat as an affirmation of life? Or how can Nora get into the ladder device as an affirmation of life? Mm. Um, 
all of those ideas basically kind of synced up, and that's why we did it. Well, finally, I, I've taken up too much of your time, but we always ask some of the same questions of all of our guests at the end. So I, I want to ask you just a few more. I hope I get them right. <laughs> the first one is, what's the last like pop culture thing, movie, TV show, book, whatever, that you have taken in, and what did you think of it, other than your own work? I think probably Master of None Season 2 is the freshest thing that I've taken in, and I thought it was phenomenal. Mm. It feels like it's the beginning of a new form of half-hour television um, that is, you know, maybe in the legacy of uh, of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where it's the writer personality. You know, uh, Louis is another show that I love. Uh, Atlanta is another show that I love. But it's sort of like, I feel like I'm getting this very unique lens on the world through Aziz's very specific you know, thoughts and desires and emotional reality that feels just absolutely and totally unique to anything that I've seen before. I love the idea of the episode, as you know. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole, but the parts of the whole are sometimes more interesting. And so his ability, there's an episode in this season where we break away from him and his friends at the very beginning, and then we only get back to them at the very end, but we spend some time with just some average New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. And it was like, poetry. It was Mm. just off the charts. One of the best episodes of television that I've seen this year. So, um, you know, big fan. Um, Who's the writer you've learned the most from that you've never met? Oh, that's a good one. Tarantino, Mm. Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. And I think that watching Pulp Fiction for me in 1994 uh, in Burbank, sitting on the in the aisle of the theater because it was sold out and they, this was before you could buy tickets in advance, sitting on the floor next to my college roommate, Eric, watching that movie, it ending, and then us just basically staying and watching it again, like I literally felt like my brain was being reprogrammed or I've just, I just received like an update for the (laughs) operating system. (laughs) I was a huge fan of Reservoir Dogs, but I think like that movie was, was a new thing. It was Mm. next level. And finally, what are, what are you looking forward to? It doesn't have to be pop culture. It can just be like life stuff, but it can be pop culture. I don't care. What am I looking forward to? I'm going on a Disney cruise to Alaska with my family. My mom is, it's been her dream to go to Alaska, to take us to Alaska. I was like, ah, I've never been on a cruise before. Everything about the idea of a cruise is sort of like, makes me feel trapped and uncomfortable, but I'm getting kind of, I'm getting kind of psyched to go on the cruise to Alaska. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) I look forward to hearing all about it. Yes. Uh, uh, In your next. We should, we should do a, we should do a a podcast about it. Yeah. In in your next show, Disney Cruise to Alaska. Oh my God. (laughs) So good. This is, yeah. I'm not trying to plug Disney. In fact, that's, it's kind of a, it's kind of an inverse, reverse plug. Like, I guess I have to go on this thing, but um, <laughs> but I'm sure it will be lovely. I will send you uh, I will I will send you some selfies with Goofy. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, and and uh, everybody check out the leftovers. It's all on HBO Go now, and if you want to watch Lost, you can watch it in five million different ways. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. And now it's time for the closing credits. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Bo and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nushak Kerwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. 
Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. And we recorded this week's episode in the wonderful podcast studio at Village Workspaces in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Jay Brooks. I'll be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. But until then, let the mystery be. Before we go, promise me you're never going to become a farmer. I won't. It's not that you wouldn't be a great farmer, but I think the world needs your, your cultural perspective. Well, thank you for that. If, if the world ends, I'm going to become a farmer. Okay, good. That's my plan. Deal. But yeah. I think that's fair. Until then, doing this. Deal. All right. Thanks, Todd.